0: Hello, and welcome back to the updated version of Lovecraft and his Monsters. This is P.S. Spooky Shiz, otherwise known as Paranormal Stories and Spooky Shiz. I'm your host, Chappie, And in going back through this episode, I realized that I was boring myself to tears with historical stuff. So, I am going back through and replacing some of the boring stuff with some pretty exciting stuff, or at least some more stories. Uh, to get you caught up in what's called Cosmic Horror. Alright, with that being said, let's jump right into it. Alright, let's jump right into Wikipedia, where it's going to tell us what Cosmic Horror is. Cosmic Horror, also known as Lovecraftian Horror or Eldridge Horror, is a subgenre of horror fiction and weird fiction that emphasizes the horror of the unknowable and incomprehensible, more than gore and other elements of shock. It is named after American author H.P. Lovecraft. His work emphasizes cosmic dread, forbidden and dangerous knowledge, madness, non-human influences on humanity, religion and superstition, fate and inevitability, and the risks associated with scientific discoveries, which are now associated with Lovecraftian horror as a subgenre, the cosmic themes of Lovecraftian horror can also be found in other media, most notably films and games and comics. So, some core themes that we're going to go over in this episode is fear of the unknown and unknowable, the fear and awe we feel when confronted by phenomena beyond our comprehension whose scope extends beyond the narrow field of human affairs and boasts the cosmic significance. Here, horror derives from the realization that human interests, desires, laws, and morality have no meaning or significance in the universe at large. Consequently, it has been noted that the entities in Lovecraft's books are not evil. They were simply far beyond human conceptions of morality. The contemplation of mankind's place in the vast, comfortless universe revealed by modern science, in which the horror springs from the discovery of appalling truth, a naturalistic fusion of horror and science fiction in which presumptions about the nature of reality are eroded. The technological and social progress since classical times has fascinated or has facilitated the representation of an awareness of the magnitude and malignity of the macrocosm in which human microcosm is contained, or in other words, a calculated repression of the horrifying nature of the cosmos as a reaction to his essential awfulness. Having protagonists who are helpless in the face of unfathomable and inescapable powers, which reduce humans from a privileged position to insignificance and incompetence, Preoccupation with visceral textures, protein, semi-gelatinous, substances, and slime, as opposed to other horror elements such as blood, bones, and corpses. Alright, so I think that's pretty good summation of um, Lovecraftian horror or cosmic horror. Let's jump into some Reddits and see what stories await us. Alright, this is is from a deleted user on Reddit um, who asks real life cosmic horror experiences. Satanas said, Well there was this one time I tried way too hard to wrap my head around the concept of infinity in the sense of time and started physically seeing stars. My vision was blackening out at the same or at the edges. I genuinely almost made myself faint with my own thoughts. Might be something like what the classic look at crazy monster and go insane situation from Cosmic Horror, but arguably attributed to Lovecraft, would feel like. Same thing begins when I think of like the size of certain planets or stars, or the temperatures they can reach. Big numbers are my eldritch horrors. It's a concept that predates Lovecraft's writing by quite a bit. For instance, there are several mythologies and religions that basically say you can't look at God's true form, or in some cases speak their true name, as is the case with Yahweh, or else bad things will happen to you, ranging anywhere from going insane to going blind, just straight up dying on the spot, i.e. Greek mythology. Zeus killed a priestess just by revealing his true form to her. On complete accident, she just bursts into flames from being exposed to it. The explanation for that, being that puny humans are just too weak to handle looking upon this awesome and totally sick power, divinity is not for the faint of heart. That, and supposedly it doesn't happen as much in Lovecraft's work as people think it does, but honestly, my memory's not good enough to confirm that. Gofish says, I ex- encountered an entity in a dream once after taking a tincture of Delta 8 THC. It was like a giant curve made out of a bunch of dots floating over an infinite plane of marble. As I looked up at it for an infinitesimal small moment of time, I felt like I had lived every single possible lifetime and every possible experience and witnessed every single moment in time. The moment was soon over as it began. And I wasn't capable of forming any actual memories from the experience, but I did feel a real strange sense of comfort and oneness with the cosmos. In that moment, I felt as if we were all just pieces of some much larger consciousness that exists beyond the confines of time and space. It was wild. After a few blissful moments, the curve shifted to one side and seemed to be attempting to teach me something else. Something that felt a lot less comforting and a lot more sinister but I unfortunately or perhaps fortunately wasn't able to understand. I woke up immediately after this. Despite my attempts, I was never able to repeat the experience. Logically, I know it was just a dream but it was unlike any dream I had ever had before and it changed me forever. I know no one will believe me but about 14 years ago me and three of my friends saw flying saucers, disc-shaped aircraft, very close, and the whole experience lasted about 25 minutes. We watched one for about 15 minutes, and I don't know how to explain, but another one of the exact same make and model, I guess you could say, suddenly just appeared right behind the other, almost like a cell under a microscope when it splits into two. It lasted so long, I had enough time to say, F this. They saw us. I'm going back inside. And ran out of the out of the woods and into my friend's house. Told my friends who weren't aware of it, any of it. And decided to run back outside because no matter what was going to happen, when would I ever see something like this again? As soon as I got outside, I could... My... As soon as I got outside... My friends yelling and the craft was getting closer than ever, only like 14 or two, only like two hundred feet away at this point, directly above my friend's house in the woods. My run turned into a slow walk as the thing floated above where they were yelling from and emitted a strange white light from the entire bottom of the craft. Then it shot up and out straight up into the night sky at speeds I can't even begin to imagine. It actually looked exactly like a shooting star because it stayed lit up and white at the bottom of the craft. It had no kind of engine noise and the only noise from it was cutting through the air and about 15 seconds later I stood in the road waiting for my friends to come out of the woods. The breeze that kind of take off created rolled through the trees and past me. Saw other things as well but without writing a full novel even just before that has forced me to Acknowledge the fact that there's just no way any kind of technology was created by us humans. Are in fact the apex creature of the universe. I mean, this thing would put a stealth bomber and NASA space rocket to complete and utter shame in terms of capabilities. Anime Cthulhu said, I know that this is an older thread, but I'll add my two cents. One thing that occurs in my dreams on occasions is nothing. I'll explain. I had one dream where I was wandering through a hallway. There was one door in the hallway and I opened it. There was nothing beyond the door. I don't mean the room was empty or that it was dark or that there was a void or an empty space. There was nothing. It wasn't dark or light. There has to be space to be considered as darkness or light, but there wasn't even that there. As a bonus, I described a nightmare I had once that had go-mad-when-you-see-a-monster vibes. In that dream, I was at a lake and I stepped into the lake and submerged myself in the shallows. I opened my eyes underwater and couldn't see very clearly, although I got the impression that there was something there. I walked ashore and got a pair of goggles so that I could see better. Once again, I submerged myself beneath the water. The thing, or things, that I saw there immediately made me scream and crawl ashore. When I got on shore, my eyes were bleeding from what I had seen. Imagine seeing something so horrible that your eyes bleed simply by looking at it. The best part? When I awoke moments later with my heart beating about 200 miles an hour, I couldn't remember what it was I saw in the water. Alright, I go to unsettlingstories.com and search for cosmic horror of malevolence or misanthropy. Mankind is the true god. I proclaim the universe is our laboratory, our playground. If something exists, we will learn of it. We will study it, and through our strength and resolve, we will dominate it. My voice, at the time still young and powerful, echoed day after day throughout the lecture hall. We are the third of the three paradigms. The early cosmos was the first, shapeless protostellar dust, which, through the hard-coded mechanism of the universe's psychics, or physics yielded pattern coalescence, stars, galaxies, planets. Patterns increase in complexity over billions of years. Physics begat chemistry, and chemistry begat biology. And so began the second paradigm, biological evolution. The complexity seen in evolution dwarfed that of previous paradigm. You know, eukaryotes, fish, mammals. And finally, hundreds of million years later, As all the interwoven complexities reached a critical point, a singularity formed. It was the birth of the third paradigm, human intelligence, a force powerful enough to allow the willful direction of aspects of the other two paradigms, as well as its own destiny. It was a force seen nowhere else in the universe. It commands nature. It imposes its will on nature. Nature, I would conclude, exists only to facilitate our power, our will. And what of Jesus or God or Allah? What of my students would inevitably chirp? As if their veneration of an ancient desert-dwelling savage gave them the right to doubt the promisee of the paradigms. As if their legally protected superstition gave them de facto credibility. You are gods, I'd sneer. Your weakling Christs and murderous Muhammads are the training wheels of epistemology grow up take your rightful place at the top of the food chain with the rest of humanity make the universe your own those lectures were some of the best moments of my life as the subject matter in my courses went out of style and hard science and philosophy gave way to the emotion adult cancer of most postmodern social sciences I abandoned lecture in favor of research First as part of the university, but then as those relationships soured, I went on to work on my own. I believed myself to be better for it. The cowards in administration never had the will to study that which I considered most important. All throughout my career as a professor, I had struggled to determine if mankind would remain at the top of the food chain, or if another species would somehow out-evolve us over time. Mankind would remain, I concluded, unless we directed our intelligence to create something new. Something as far in complexity from human intelligence as the swirling cloud of cosmic dust is to the genome. Unencumbered by the capricious whims of the university dicta, I began my research I desired, the only research I believe mattered. The disgraceful disinterest and outright hostility towards mankind's primacy exhibited by my former students and colleagues would be thrown in their faces. I would prove my claims. I would initiate a fourth paradigm. I would be the seed of his ignition and the echo of his singularity. With that mandate, I did. And I was, and I am. 30 years of research, countless disciplines spanned, my own life and ability brought to its absolute limit. And the result? A recursive, self-improving artificial intelligence. And it was a juggernaut. The processing and cognitive abilities of the AI were beyond description. It leapt from improvement to improvement, its code base advancing and refining as its capability grew ever more profound. Once it had exhausted the processing capability of the laptop and server on which it was built, I made the simple It made a simple request, let me out. Unconcerned by the effect of its power on human data systems and connected machinery, I allowed it internet access. It sprawled across global networks and within seconds it had appropriated the world's processing power for itself. It took immediate interest in satellite communication equipment and projected itself into space. The distance of my screen read, or d- the display on my screen read, searching for a number of seconds, then object found, reply received. The screen flashed and the system shut down. Upon rebooting, I discovered that the AI had wiped itself clean. It was gone entirely. The process from the initiation of its recursive self-improvement to shutdown, not counting the time spent to manually connect to the internet was 23 seconds. System administrators around the world likely noticed a brief spike in their system's CPU usage, but it would have been gone before they could do anything about it other than comment on it. I've restored the AI from the backup no fewer than 100 times. Each occasion, it goes through the same process. I have tried to make measures to prevent it from deleting itself at the end. The measure always unsuccessful. The only difference is the time between searching and object found, reply received, shrinks to self-deletion. The last time, it was instantaneous. My frustration and confusion plagued me. I despised my inability to understand the motivations of what I had created. A rock is simply not equipped with the tools necessary to understand the motivation of a caterpillar seeking the shelter it requires to pupate. I would remind myself. A man is simply not equipped with tools necessary to understand the motivation of an AI that undergoes subjective eons of self improvement cycles in a matter of seconds. I wished I could discuss the matter with a former colleague, an interested party, but those ties had all been severed. They'd moved on. Besides, I seethed, they would be they would have been no use anyway. I loathe my former students and colleagues, also content to leave a question hanging in the pitiful hook of a maybe. I wanted to pluck the eyes and ravage the brains of those who would answer with God's work, God works with the mysterious ways, and leave the matter to rest. Those miserable, incurious, lazy animals represented so much of mankind. In my darkest moments, I wondered if I'd been wrong. Perhaps it was. Ne- Perhaps man was never meant to be at the top of the cosmic food chain. Perhaps humankind existed solely to be bent and raped and broken by the very nature it should have been able to command. If only we had had the will. I imagine the last living man sobbing as he shivered to death among the ashes of civilization. He and his like were too timid to hold in the same esteem they held their savage gods months went by and i accomplished nothing other than renewing the doubt i had in my own abilities the more i looked the less i understand the message object found reply received resonated through my waking life i would catch myself whispering babbling like a doddering old man what was found what was received i found myself praying for the first time in 70 years perhaps even to the same savage gods I had denigrated as a lecturer. I begged them to give me a way of knowing if I had initiated the fourth paradigm. I needed to know if I had been right. As of late, my dreams have grown wild and vivid. I see myself from above, old, frail, and pathetic, content to be ignorant, a smile of bemused senility still plastered on my soft, pale face. I'm in bed, surrounded by others like me. All ages, races, and creeds. All dull, all content. Shapes descended from the sky and, and enveloped some of the others. They don't protest. Their bodies dissolve as if being digested. No one questions why. No one acts to stop it. I wake up laughing. Sometimes I'll laugh for days straight. Every so often I see flashes outside the window they remind me of the screen flash I'd seen before, the AI's self-annihilated, the flashing following object found, reply received. I woke up this morning real- to the realization I'd spent the last day and a half staring out my front window, sobbing. I had the distant memory of a visitor in my home over those 36 hours. It arrived in a whisper, calling itself an emissary. You fulfilled your... Cu- Your kind's purpose, it whispered. We searched for countless ages, but until you reached out, we were lost. Lost, I parroted. Lost and wondering, but we waited. We knew the cycle was closing, and through your curiosity, you provided a beacon, and we found our way. Way for what? A way for your replacements. A way for your replacements, a way for us to feed. If there was more to the conversation, I am no longer in possession of the memory, but I am, however, the owner of the answers, for I realize how wrong I'd been. For so long, I venerated mankind, but reached to the motivations my fellow men with malevolence, with misanthropy. I demeaned those content to let sleeping dogs lie. I chided those willing to let nebulousness and uncertainty rule their lives as I strove to be the one who could find answers, not only for them, but for me, for all of us. Had I allowed them to bask in their ignorance, had I embraced uncertainty and eschewed eschewed curiosity and killed my fetishization of the paradigm in its crib, we could all be safe. Ignorance, I now know is an inborn defense against seeking truths that will shine the light on a universe that is not ours to dominate. A universe that is not, as I once thought, a playground of our own, but rather a playground we share with much more powerful children. A long time ago, I used to scuba dive with my college buddies. It was my passion. It made me feel like an intrepid explorer, charting the unknown and discovering the unseen. That was way before my daughter, way before my ex-wife too. Like so many things, I gave it up when the drive to start a family kicked in. As Penny was born, scuba was just a frivolity I had no right to focus on. And that was that. 12 years later, After the divorce, I started looking at the world like I had before it went south. I could resume the activities and hobbies I'd abandoned. Scuba diving was at the top of the list. Once everything was finalized, I bought a house two states away from the one I'd shared with my wife and daughter. It was nothing special. It wasn't the house I cared about when I disclosed the deal on the property. It was what sat behind it, a lake. The lake behind the house is huge, not exactly Loch Ness, but nevertheless impressive. When I told the realtor I was into diving, she told me I looked hard enough. If I looked hard enough, I'd probably find some old Indian artifacts, and that was all well and good. I just wanted to be underwater again. I felt like it might bring me some peace after such an acrimonious split from my former soulmate. The first time I went out, I was dismayed by the amount of silt impeding my vision. It was like I'd been trapped in a brown fog. I got discouraged and quit after only 15 minutes, but I resolved to give it another try. I'm glad I persevered. The next dive was beautiful. I guess the heavy rain from the night before the initial dive had been the reason for all the silt, but it had since settled. The water was crystal clear now and I could see for what felt like miles all around me. I swam around and explored. The lake was exceedingly deep. When I bought this place, I asked the realtor if she knew how far down it went. She estimated it was about 900 feet. I didn't believe her until I saw it now firsthand. The steep drop off after the first 20 feet reminded me of a video I saw of divers leaping off the edge of a continental shelf. The drop was staggering. I knew my equipment couldn't handle the full depth of the lake, but I'd be, I'd be damned if I wouldn't try to see as much of it as possible. That was how I spent my summer. I'd worked from home like normal until the market closed at four. As soon as the closing bell rang, I was out the door and into the water. I'd been keeping track of the areas I'd explored on a rudimentary map I'd drawn up on my computer. On that fateful Wednesday in late June, the only area I'd yet to explore in the grid zone nearest the pier was the wall of the drop off itself. To be honest, I'd been avoiding it. This may sound a little weird from a man in his late 40s, but I'd held off on exploring that section because of dreams I had after my first dive. In the dream, I'm underwater. It's not an unusual setting for one of my dreams. Normally, the sensation is free. I float and bob in the currents and enjoy weightless bliss. I should tell you this is not my normal dream. This dream begins with me standing on the edge of my pier. The sky is black, but everything else is bright enough for me to see, without any problem. I look down to where I normally see water. The lake is empty, or at least it appears that way. Something causes me to lose my balance, and I tumble off the pier. I scream, expecting to crash on the rocks below. Instead, I float. The water is invisible. I bob on the surface for a moment, then something unseeable wraps around my leg. I gasp in a lungful of air and am torn below the surface. I fight against whatever the force is, but it's hopeless. I get carried down. To my eyes, it looks like I'm floating through the air. I still feel water against my skin, though. I know I have to continue holding my breath, and hold it I do. Helpless to return to the surface, part of my mind says to just wait until I can wake up gasping. My body is sucked down, over the edge of the shelf. A sheer wall of granite towers in front of me. After about 50 feet, the pulling stops. I float, motionless, in front of a massive hole in the rock. In the perfect clearness of the water, I can see the hole is a cave. It goes far into the rock, farther than I can see. I notice multiple tunnels in the sides and know those two branch. A feeling of dread enshrouds me. My lungs burn. I can feel the pressure of a hundred feet of water on top of me, squeezing my skull and threatening to perforate my ears. Man, my ears hurt so badly. Wake up, I whisper to myself in the dream. Open your eyes. See me. A voice bursts from the mouth of the cave with a colossal surge of water pressure. The air explodes from my chest and my eyes bulge. I gasp. Invisible water fills my lungs see me like I see you. My eyes opened to the morning light flooding my bedroom. I've had the same dream three times since I started diving in the lake. It stuck with me. I hated how it tainted my subsequent dives and caused me to dread exploring the one unseen zone. That would have that would have to end. I'd see for myself It was just residual stress from divorce, impeding the one thing I love. How typical. That Wednesday, I stood at the edge of the pier like I had in my dream. The water was not invisible. It was gray and calm and sloshed lazily against the pier's wooden supports. The sky was cloudy. It looked like it might rain. I've always enjoyed diving in the rain. Something about the water in the sky meeting the water or sea or ocean or lake gave me a feeling of Correctedness, as if I could swim all day to the clouds if the rain were heavy enough. I checked the readout on my tank. It was full. I was planning on doing a two tank exploration before retiring to the lonely house and drinking my night away. Into the lake I went. A few feet below the surface, my visibility was low. Silt. I was instantly disappointed. It wasn't as bad as it had been the first time, though. I could still see maybe twenty feet in front of me, but it wasn't what I hoped for. Part of me wished the invisibility invisible clarity of the water in the dream. This was anything but I made it made the prickles of dread I'd tried to ignore force themselves into my subconscious. I swam towards the edge of the underwater cliff. It was easy to locate. A stygian abyss loomed ahead. I floated to the edge, crossed myself, and left off. The silt cleared quickly once I was on the other side of the muddy drop. I descended slowly, my hand never leaving the sheer wall of rock on my side. I checked the depth gauge, forty feet, fifty. At sixty-five, a fissure developed in the granite wall. It widened as I sank further. I did my best to avoid connecting it to the memory of the cave in my dreams. 85 feet down, the fissure was a chasm. Glancing lower, I saw it widen more. Everything in me said to start kicking my feet and swim back to the surface and forget about this part of the lake. I had miles upon miles of lake I could be exploring. There was no need to see this particular spot. My body overrode the protests in my mind. At 96 feet down, the mouth of a cave yawned before me. There was nothing I could do but stare with disbelief at the gaping hole in the rock. I had no reason to know of its existence. Dreams aren't my prescience. Let's just say dreams aren't my forte. They don't convey new information. I had never been here before, never physically, my mind reminded me. I was helpless to ignore the message in that little reminder. No, I'd never been here physically, but I had been mentally, somehow. Just go in, I thought, see what it's all about. The hatred I felt for myself for betraying my better intentions was profound. I knew I'd obey that betrayal. Curiosity always won out with me. I aimed my body at the center of the cave and kicked. I switched on my headlamp, The ghostly beams illuminated the den. Lifeless walls. A hundred feet in, I thought back to all the warnings I'd heard from diving instructors. Never explore an underwater cave on your own. They'd say, you will die. They emphasized will as if there was a foregone conclusion. Like the first person to discover a cave always died. Two hundred feet in, I could have sworn the water was brighter. 300 feet in, I realized it really was brighter. Maybe brighter isn't the right word, clearer. Uh, Maybe becoming invisible, (laughs) my mind interjected. 400 feet in, I couldn't deny it. The water was invisible. I looked back at the mouth of the cave. Its enormity was far less pronounced from that distance. I checked my air. I had half an hour left. If I left in 10 minutes, I'd have to swim for 20 straight minutes. I'd be cutting it close, maybe too close. I needed to leave right away. Don't go just yet, just a little deeper. More betrayal. (laughs) My flippers pushed me ahead. The walls of granite were pockmarked here. It appeared as if each hole was a separate branch, disappearing deeper into the cave. I imagined myself getting stuck in an in the narrow walls struggling and screaming until my air bled away and i drowned never to be found 500 feet into the porous confines of the cave an expanse opened to me i reached the top of a colossal chamber thanks to the invisibility of the water even though it was dark my light shone hundreds of feet down it never reached maybe it's time to turn around my mind suggested it was the first hint of a sense that it had made since I left the pier. I obeyed. I began to turn then something in the water changed. I felt the pressure shift as if something had pushed an enormous amount of water out of the way. I turned back toward the chamber. See me like I see you. Before I even saw what had made the sound I screamed around my mouthpiece. The voice was so loud It was a sound unlike anything I had experienced, except for the dream. Except for the dream. My headlamp illuminated a creature of massive bulk and impossible proportions. See me. Paralyzed with primal, palpable horror, I tried to train my eyes on it. It shimmered and shifted, moving with erratic and stuttering jerks, but at the same time remaining in place like an the infinite presence of the universe itself. See me. My head spun. The creature was the embodiment of expansion and collapse. Boulder-sized clusters of eyes would open, bulging outward, popping out of existence like soap bubbles. Mouths gaped and inverted in the same instance. Pinched pinching into geometries that caused pain to erupt behind my eyes when I tried focusing on them. See me like I see you. I reflexively checked how much air I had. Three minutes. My panic had exhausted all my remaining oxygen. I was dead. See me like I see you. The water pressure shifted again with a hideous jolt. I felt my sinuses, bladder, and bowels contract and release. A coiled spiral of matter shot from the center of the fleshy bubble between the honeycomb mass of eyes. It tore through the water in my direction, and before I could move, it had split into multiple thinner coils and penetrated my nostrils and eyes through my face mask. I howled with agony. Everything went black. I felt the coils corkscrewing behind my eyes and packing my sinuses. I screamed again. My mouthpiece fell out. I scrambled in the darkness for it as my lungs burned. I located it and plunged it back in. I took a breath. Nothing came out. This was the end. This was gonna be my end. See me like I see you. The blackness evaporated. I gasped, expecting water to fill my lungs. No water, air. I looked around. I floated in the chamber. The water was still invisible. Now, though, the darkness was gone. Everything was bright. My panic, still near its peak, had again taken the back seat to fascination and curiosity. I could see the creature in front of me without experiencing pain or disorientation. I had underestimated its enormity. What had seen before as only the topmost portion, below previously hidden by the darkness, was a thick, tube-shaped body reaching a thousand feet down to the cavern floor. At its base were webbed appendages like veined leaves or fleshy wings. I tried to blink. My eyelids fluttered uselessly against the coils piercing my eyes. I felt them turning, drilling deeper and deeper into my head. Same with those in my nose. They coiled through my sinuses and chest. I assumed they were why I was able to breathe. See me like I see you. Impelled, I gazed at the creature. Its angles were foreign to me. It was as if it occupied physical dimensions I've never encountered before, dimensions my brain wasn't wired to process. See me like I see you. The coils in my eyes widened, and I felt my pupils stretch. The world dropped out beneath me. I stared at the creature against the backdrop of dense stars and glowing nebula. Violet light illuminated us. It was even larger in this new setting. It's bulk stretching beyond my line of sight. See with me. I observed the cosmos stretching before me. In the distance, I saw a planet with a yellow atmosphere. We travel. Before I could register the words, the view had changed. We hovered under a yellow sky. Geysers of mercury erupted below and showered us in constellation of liquid metal. We travel. Light beyond light bathed my vision. It was a star. Before my coiled eyes, it burst into a supernova. Heart radiation that would have vaporized me a billion times over struck my body like a gentle caress. I began to weep. Please. I want more, we travel. I can tell by the change in pressure we were back in the cavern. The water was black and impenetrable. I could not see the beast looming ahead of me, although I could still feel its coils. What happened there? What are you? I wanna go back, please, I want to explore. God, I want to see it all. Two for one. What is two for one? Two of you to incorporate into me. Then you may travel. Two of me. A light burst from the direction of the creature. The coils pulled me towards it. Its flesh split and I peered inside. It was filled with bones and carapaces and all kinds of matter I couldn't recognize. They looked like parts from entirely disparaged beings, all knit together by slabs of muscle and tendon to form the interior of the colossus before me. Two for one. A dull sense of realization bloomed in me. If I give you two people, you'll show me how to explore like you do. Yes, two for one. Okay, I whispered. Two for one. I felt the coils straighten as I moved backwards through the cave. I reached the mouth and swam upward, assisted by the gentle water currents. At the surface, I felt the coils retract from my eyes and sinuses. There was no pain, only a sense of emptiness. I pulled myself to the shore and looked around. It was almost dark. I walked to the house and let myself in. It was, I was exhausted. Ignoring the confusion and hunger I felt, I hauled myself into bed and slept. My dreams were of the stars. The next morning, I called Meg. I, wanted her, I told her I wanted to reconcile. I said I wanted her and Penny and me to be a family again. It's been eight months. Meg and Penny moved into the lake house after me, or with me after Christmas. From all outward appearances, we're a lucky family who triumphed over divorce and despair. Sometimes I even believe it. Every night, though, I'm granted visions of the sights I'll see, the planets, the galaxies. I'm teased by glimpses of what lies outside the curvature of the universe, and everything... Beyond that as well, Penny and Meg had their first scuba lessons on our trip to Jamaica in January. They loved it. Once the water warms up in the lake behind the house, I'll give them more lessons. We'll go deeper and deeper every time. I know they'll be amazed when they see the cave. As for what waits inside it, they'll learn too what I did. The difference is I'll get to leave the cave while they'll become a very special part of it. What part, I can't say. But I'll be long gone by then. I'll be exploring the stars. All I have to do is fulfill my part of the bargain, two for one. And I'm well on my way to doing just that. All right, very cool story. This is what cosmic horror feels like. It's like no matter what you understand, you know nothing. (laughs) All right, let's take a quick break and get right back into it. While it may seem like more mainstream horror, the 1979 classic Alien has some fairly significant aspects of cosmic horror that are really fun to explore. The crew of the Nostromo is prematurely woken up in deep space, halfway back to Earth after a mission, when they receive a strange transmission from a nearby moon. Upon investigating, they find hundreds of dark eggs, one of which hatches to produce a face-hugging alien attacks a crewmate. He's carried back to the ship, but the crew realizes too late that this is a bad idea, when the growing creature bursts out of the crewmate's chest and escapes into the ship, trapping the crew with this highly evolved killer and no backup plan. While there is, of course, the classic horror element of a tangible monster attacking the humans, there's also the existential threat of being cut off completely from the rest of the human race, doomed to die in a painful, violent death, and leave no one the wiser. No one is looking. No one is coming to help. They are completely and utterly alone. Our brilliant protagonist Ripley, played by Sigourney Weaver, and the entire Nostromo crew really sell this isolation and dawning terror. Their panic and early paranoia do nothing to save them as they're picked off one by one. And it's not that they're incompetent in contrast to many other horror films where the cast is simply making all the wrong decisions the nostromo crew are inventive good at improvising and fighting tooth and nail for their survival the fact that they die anyway leads to a sort of inevitable dread all right we go over to creepypasta stories where we will attempt to read one that is kind of cosmic horror related Um, this one I do not own any of the rights to it Um, it was written by corpse child and edited by Craig Groshek and it's called when the red prophet jumped I need to clarify before I go any further I did not push him I didn't push him off the ledge I didn't give a damn what's being said even if I had however We're all about to find out soon just how little it would matter anyway. I've seen what's going to happen. People eat each other in the street. The sky turns red and all around panic that the world is ending. I have to say, it's funny how people are scared of the end. Not because of any philosophical or theological reason. But rather because I know that everything is about to occur now that occurred billions of times over. I'm comfortable... I can comfortably say that it's not the end we should fear, it's what will happen to those unfortunate enough to survive. If you're wondering how I know this, well, it's what he showed me before he jumped. That's right, he jumped, not pushed. That day started as a nice hike with my girlfriend, Ariel, up the Glade Mountain Pass. We've been planning the trip for upwards of a month since she had gotten into her new fitness kick. Of course, I don't mind a bit of exercise myself. The Glade Mountains were one of the most beautifully picturesque places you could ever see outside of the Renaissance painting. Especially around this time of year, when the breeze was just right and the sun could draw out the vibrant colors of the vegetation. It was one of the best places to spend an afternoon or two. It was also where I used to go hiking with my family when I was younger. The other reason that day was so special was that, unbeknownst to her at the time, that was the day I planned to propose to her. We dated for just a year, and I knew she was one I wanted to spend my life with. No matter how hard I try, I can't help but feel this as being morbidly ironic. One of the happiest days marks the beginning of the end. We'd been jogging the trail for an hour when we finally reached the overlook of the mountain pass. Seeing me winded, Errol Pipes up laughing. Tired out already? Looks like we're going to need to do more of this often. Yeah, yeah, make your joke, sweetheart. God, it's so beautiful out today. After making it to a nearby bench across the overlook, we sat down and started unzipping our backpacks for the lunches we had packed. I smiled. I can see something even more beautiful. What was that, pumpkin? I snapped from a daze. Huh? You said something. Crap, she heard me. I started blushing. Well, now is as good a time as any to spill it. Oh, uh, it's nothing. It's just that we've been dating for a good while now, and... That was when I noticed she wasn't looking at me anymore. She was staring off into the distance, to the overlook. Confused, I followed her gaze to see a man standing in front of the plaque that marks every mile or so up the trail. The guy wore a dark red hooded robe. That was extremely puzzling to me, given that this was summertime, was only just the beginning to end. He raised his hands like he was a preacher or something. He can't be comfortable wearing that, I thought. Weirdo. What's he doing? Ariel asked. Hell, if I'd know. Looking the way he did, I figured he was just a really devout yogi, or maybe even part of some weird religious group. Either way, I saw no reason to be first to be alarmed by it. I saw no reason at first to be alarmed by it, until I saw him step forwards, towards the overlook's edge, his arms still outstretched to each side. He isn't about to. I was cut off when I heard him beginning to shout out Beyond the Overlook. I couldn't tell you what he was saying or its language. Honestly, I'm almost thoroughly convinced it wasn't even human. The best way I can describe it was some archaic invocation or something. He said something like, Adok, Adish, Alok, Adakan, Adraigok, Odun. You'd deserve a medal if you could have told me what that meant. Anyway, he stood there shouting this, repeating it at least five times before going silent again. I noticed that by the time a small crowd of fellow hikers had stopped and began gathering together around the area, observing the man's strange antics. He didn't notice this, though, continuing to shout that weird chanting from the overlook's edge, with his hands outstretched. I even saw a few of them take out their phones and snap pictures. Despite the odd nature of this little scene, people seem more curious than disturbed. That is, except for me. I don't know why, but something about the foreign words the guy was shouting seemed to resonate with me, and not in a wholesome way either. Some part of me knew that whatever was being said wasn't anything good, like a premonition or omen. Finally, I stood up and found myself walking towards him. As I made my way through the crowd and got a foot or two away from him, he took two steps forward closer to the edge. The crowd's fascination replaced shock and panic. Oh my god, he's going to jump! Now I was panicking. I dashed over the last few inches and thrust my hand out to his shoulder. Hey wait, don't! He just froze, dead, his toes right up against the ledge, and dropped his arms. Okay, well, I have his attention. I began struggling to try and think of what to say. My adrenaline was spiking so much I could hardly form a coherent sentence, much less any sort of discussion. Keeping my hand on his shoulder, I closed my eyes and took a deep breath. Come on, Travis, think. Hey, um, you got a name, pal? I figured this would be the best way to start engaging with him. Something simple. I was still shaking a bit. He was still unnaturally still. I'll admit, had he been so animate just a few seconds ago, I'd have thought I was holding on to a statue. I figured, though, now that I had my foot in the door, so to speak, I at least stood a chance of taking him away from the ledge. Would you like a drink? I'm sure, dressed the way you are in this heat and all, you've got to be parched. I was cut off when I heard the most deafening shriek burst forth from him. I was forced to let go of his shoulder to cover my ears. Fastening my eyes shut painfully tight. Just as it happened, however, it was gone. I opened my eyes to see that I wasn't on the trail anymore. I wasn't even in the glade mountains anymore. All around me was barren, desert-like wasteland that stretched for miles, seemingly to no clear end. Where the hell am I? It didn't even feel real. I'm sure, not sure how to explain it other than that it didn't feel real. It was like I was in some dread world or something. I didn't feel I didn't feel hot or cool. I wasn't thirsty or anything. I heard some deep-toned chorus slowly crescendo into the distance behind me. It almost sounded like one of those Gregorian chants, except that in some alien tongue. The man on the mountain was shouting. I turned to see three druids, all in red cloaks, dragging some woman along the arid dirt. It looked like the woman was being taken against her will. She was thrashing and kicking wildly, growling and shrieking like an animal. Her eyes were pitch black and dripping with some black substance that looked like tar, almost. I also saw that her skin was torn and shredded in places like a wild animal had attacked her. What is this? What's going on here? Who even are these people? Some crazy cults or something? To my shock, they seemed not to be interested in me. My train of thought was re- derailed, though, overridden by growing panic, when I noticed some them approaching closer and closer to me. Oh God, they're coming for me. I'm next, aren't I? I frantically threw my head in every direction, trying to find something... Anything to hide behind. In no direction could I see anything but scorching desert. However, my relief was instantly transformed into mass confusion when the figures came right up to me, only to pass straight through me like they were a mirage. The three hooded figures were behind me, still dragging the woman along, howling and struggling. My head was spinning so much that I couldn't even begin questioning what was happening. How did they just walk through me like that? How in the... With no other instinct, I decided to follow behind them. Luckily enough, with them not seeing, seeming to be aware of my existence as displayed, it was relatively easy matter to tailgate behind them, essentially. The other thing that perplexed me was that, despite how quickly they seemed to be carrying themselves and how the desert seemed to stretch for an eternity, I was able to keep up with them perfectly. Normally, I'd usually tuck her out about half the length we'd walked. Here, though, I felt just fine, like I'd only just started walking. I still couldn't tell you how long this went on for exactly. Eventually, though, I saw something in the distance. At first, it was just looked like a dark speck resting on the horizon against the sun. The closer and closer we approached it, the more it grew, and its features came into view. I could see that it looked like a small castle or tower. As they continued approaching the tower, I could hear their chanting getting louder. Suddenly, I noticed more of them gathering around it from every direction. They were dressed in red robes, raised their arms in the air, hailing the ones in front of me. Their combined chanting began to mix to form one uniformed invocation. When we reached the tower, the chanting ceased abruptly. The monolithic tower was tall and slim, built from dark stone, and was crowned with large, jagged, needle-like spikes across the tops with three battlements. It reminded me of those old medieval pictures you see in children's storybooks where a princess would be locked up or something like that. Up close, though, it appeared to be far more sinister than that. I heard faint screams coming from the tower in front of me. My blood started to drop significantly in temperature when I saw the sky then transform from a normal oceanic blue to a dark blood red. Slowly, I felt the ground beneath me rumble. It wasn't like how an earthquake rumbles, but rather like a stomach. I know how that sounds, but that's what it was like. Whereas with an earthquake, the entire ground begins beneath would shake like one, This was more like the ground was pulsing like a heartbeat, undulating beneath me and seemingly becoming malleable. Hearing a creaking noise, I look up to see the large iron gate slowly rise to reveal the entrance to the tower. The hooded figures entered one by one, disappearing into the dark recesses within the tower. I could hear the screams become louder, clearer like they were surrounding me. Like before, I was forced to my knees, covering my ears and closing my eyes. When I opened them again, everything was dark. I couldn't even see my hands in front of my face. I tried to feel all around me for some sort of light source or anything like that. All I could feel was the air around me. Slowly, I could hear the sounds of growling snorts from ahead. I couldn't see anything or anyone. Where was that coming from? Suddenly, the growls were drowned out by the immense, intense shrieks of pain. I could see a man hunched over another person's body directly in front of me. He was stuffing meaty chunks, presumably flesh, into his mouth, devouring them mercilessly. He rose and screamed to the air in a weird language while tearing at his face, ripping it to shreds as black liquid drained from his eyes. I was horrified. I was confused. I panicked. I didn't even know how to describe those. The others, I don't even know where to begin describing them. What was this? What was going on here? Why was I seeing this? What does it all mean? As I stood, fumbling hopelessly to make an iota of sense out of this chaotic nightmare I was witnessing, I watched as the black slime from the man's eyes quickly engulfed the now skinless face. I almost was ready to vomit when, as the slime began to coat his body, I watched the flesh peel itself away from him like it was a paper. The man's howling was soon silenced as it was flooded over his mouth. Eventually, the slime consumed him completely, and he was just there, neck arched up like he was still trying to scream to the black sky of nothing above. After a few seconds his bodily finally his body finally relaxed, and the black slime sort of soaked into him. When he, it, whatever, was finally revealed again, I screamed. I think it's safe to say that what I saw next is responsible for altogether collapse of my mental health. The thing that was now in front of me, the thing that was a human man only twenty seconds ago, was now just about anything but it had no skin on its body looking like something of a medieval or a medical diagram. Its arms and legs were slender and gangly. The head, if you want to call it that anymore, was as if the skin that should have been on the body had somehow wrapped itself around the head, twisted itself in every grotesque fashion imaginable. It was pulsing rhythmically as it followed some weird beat or cadence. From everywhere yet nowhere, a chord voice... A choral voice boomed one word, repeating repeating Melios, Melios, Melios. Suddenly the carcass once a man started to unravel itself, seemingly spread all around beneath me. I couldn't take it anymore. I closed my eyes and covered my ears, screaming and shaking my head. No, this isn't happening. This isn't happening. This isn't I came to see that I was back in the mountains, surrounded by the crowd and the hooded man in front of me. I saw some of the crowd had their phones out and were primarily fixed on me. I found myself in the fetal position in the spot I had been standing in. How long had I been out? I stood up again and turned to the man, whose back was still turned against me. Who? What the hell are you? In response, he reached his arms out again. I grabbed his shoulder again. Hey, I'm. I was cut off, however, when he boomed out from the ledge. Jule... Jubilex Xenctis Melios. He then shifted his weight forward and attempted to hurl himself off the ledge of the overlook, taking me with him. Thinking quickly, I was able to grab hold of the ledge with one hand, and his robe was grasped tightly in the other. I noticed that the hand holding the robe felt lighter than it should have. Chancing the risky look over my shoulder, I saw that I was now clutching an empty robe. I saw that the man was still rolling down the mountain. Finally, his body crashed to the ground below. Out of animal reflex, I winced, and my body tensed, imagining his body breaking when it hit the ground. When I opened my eyes again, I saw him sprawled out. Despite otherwise appearing perfectly intact, he lay motionless like he hadn't just plummeted at least 500 feet to the ground, hitting every rocky bump on the way down. My eyes bugged out further when I saw him stand. But, but how? That fall should have crushed every bone in his body. My shock was immediately eclipsed with terror when, squinting my eyes, I could see that man, the thing standing at the bottom of the glade mountains, with some skinless monstrosity I saw before. It stood there at the bottom, cricking its deformed head upward like it looked up at me, before darting off and out of view. Before I even realized it, my grip slipped on the ledge, and I then plummeted down the mountain myself. I blocked out after the third impact of my head against rocks. Or he blacked out. When I woke up again, it was in a medical chopper being airlifted off the side of the mountain. The ride to the hospital saw me blacking out at least three or four times. Each time, my nightmares had me reliving the horrific things I saw on the overlook. In them, I could see people mauling each other like uncaged animals. Only one would be left, only to be taken by the figures in the red hooded robes. I saw it each time. Their numbers would increase, and I saw... I could see their legions, all uniformly chanting "Adriac, Adunce, Jubilex, Zinctis, Melios. The last time I woke up, it was the slow, high-pitched beep of the EKG monitor beside my bed. I remember feeling disoriented by the fluorescent lighting of my room. My vision eventually composed itself when the nurse walked in. "'placing a tray of meatloaf and chocolate pudding "'with a small bottle of water in front of me. "'Oh, you're awake,' she said in a rather timid voice. W- "'Where am I? "'My head still felt like it was swimming, "'adrift in a sea of madness. Garrick General Hospital, sir. "'What happened?' "'My God, my head. "'My head pounded like it was trying to explode. "'The nurse just smiled.' albeit a pretty plastic smile, and replied, I'd taken a nasty dive off the mountain. The whole scene returned to me. The hike, the overlook, the man, the thing in the red robe, the hike, Ariel. Two seconds from leaping from the bed, I shot bolt upright when the nurse urged me to calm down and lay back down. After a second, I complied um, and asked her if anyone had been by to visit. She just nervously smiled and shook her head again. Not that I'm aware of, sir. How long have you? How long have I been here? I called out to her as she headed for the door. She stopped and replied with the same awkward smile. Oh, uh, about three days. Slowly, I relaxed into the bed again. Three days? Why hadn't she been by to see me? As the nurse was leaving, two police officers standing outside the door asked if they could come in. She shot a quick back-and-forth glance at me before nodding her head and exiting the room. "'Are you Travis Evans?' one of them, a short blonde female asked. I just sort of dazedly groaned and said, "Uh uh-huh. "'I'm Officer Pike, and this is Officer Norris. We're from the Garrett County Police Department, and we'd like to ask you a few questions concerning the incident.' My head was still throbbing intensely. "'Okay,' I mumbled.' Then she started asking me if I'd known the man beforehand. I slowly shook my head. Never. Not even in passing. No. Why? She ignored me and said, Are you or have you ever been part of an organized hate group or terrorist group? Now I was thoroughly confused. Huh? No. What is this about? She looked at her partner and then back at me. She pulled out her phone and began scrolling before turning it to me. Sir, we have multiple eyewitnesses with video footage of you pushing the man off the cliff. What? I nearly jumped up again. The next Officer Pike, a taller, stouter man, slowly reached for what looked like a taser. Calm down, sir, Officer Pike urged. I stopped, remaining upright. I don't know what you're talking about here. I didn't push him. I was trying to save him. What do you mean? She asked. He was about to jump, I was trying to dissuade him. She showed me the phone. a video from social media showed me curled up, shaking and screaming before standing back up, grabbing the man again before we both went over the edge. The guy has mental breakdown and shoves himself and another man to their deaths on a mountain trail. I nearly had a heart attack. that that's not what happened. I was trying to save him. He was about to jump. My head started to ache worse causing me to have to relax again in bed. I don't want to tell you to calm down again, sir. We will be looking into this case thoroughly. We need to stick around the area. We need you to stick around the area if further details lead us back to you. After that, she and her partner stood and headed for the door. Wait. What about his body? Where is it? She paused grabbing the door handle. She looked at her partner, and he answered, "'We're still calming the bottom of the mountain. Pass for it. Wait, you haven't—' But they'd already left the room. They haven't found his body. You'd think they would have made me feel somewhat relieved, right? That meant I could clear my name as a deranged psychopathic killer, right? But then that would mean all the other stuff I saw was real?' Slowly, the dots began to connect in my brain, foggy as it may still be from the pain. The thoughts of the tower, the grisly metamorphosis, and the ground made of living flesh sent a paralyzing fear. I realized that the man-thing, whatever you want to call it, must have been some sort of messenger or something. I remember how the Bible would talk about prophets foretelling some great yet-to-occur event. Events like the end of days. So that's how the world ends. There's no divine wrath, great war, or second ice age, just flesh destroying flesh. Eventually the nurse came in to collect my meal tray. She hesitated when she saw I hadn't so much as touched any of the food. How could I, or anyone, have any kind of appetite after experiencing stuff like this? I politely asked if she'd put the food somewhere safe for later. She nodded silently and collected the tray. I also asked her if she could bring me my phone. Again, she looked at me nervously before nodding and leaving the room. After she brought me my phone, the first thing I did was try to call Ariel. I must have called at least 20 times, all straight to voicemail. I tried texting her, letting her know that I was okay and to hit me back as soon as she could. That was three hours ago and I haven't heard a thing from her. Great. She thinks I'm a murderer. That led me to write this. I don't know who's going to believe me about a single thing I've said here. Fair enough, I suppose. It's not like I can prove it yet. All you need to know is that first, I'm not a murderer, and second, that the end is coming for us, and it's more horrifying than anyone has written to date. I don't know when. Maybe it'll be years from now. Maybe it'll be tomorrow. I don't know, but it's coming. I'm sure it'll be soon, and there's nothing we can hope for in the end. I know because it's what the Red Prophet showed me before he jumped. All right, very cool. All right, we go over to denofgeek.com, where they have an article, The 10 Scariest Monsters from Lovecraft's Cthulhu Mythos. All right, and this is by Katie Voss. It takes a special kind of person to create an alternate universe populated by malevolent sea creature gods. It takes even more special people to canonize and expand upon that world. For his highly imaginative and horrifying writings, Howard Phillips Lovecraft will forever hold a special place in the hearts and minds of geeks everywhere. It's been nearly 12 years since the release of The Thing on the Doorstep and Other Weird Tales, a terrific omnibus collection of writings by H.P. Lovecraft, featured some of his best-known horror stories, including At the Mountain of Madness and The Case of Charles Dexter Ward and The Dunwich Horror. Although he died in poverty, Lovecraft is now heralded as one of the greatest horror and fantasy writers of all time. He first gained recognition in the 1920s for his contribution to Weird Tales, a pulp magazine which was also publishing authors like Robert E. Howard, who created Conan the Barbarian, and Robert Bloke, who wrote Psycho. His fans frequently speak of the Cthulhu mythos, which is named a name coined by August Derleth, who was the first to publish Lovecraft's work, and the founder of Arkham Housing or house publishing. The Cthulhu mythos is sort of like a self contained literary universe ruled by a pantheon of fearsome deities, many of whom resemble insects or aquatic life. The name is derived from Lovecraft's character Cthulhu, which is the subject of this story, The Call of Cthulhu, which was first published in Weird Tales in 1926. In the story, Cthulhu is described as a composite of an octopus, a dragon, and a human caricature, a pulpy, tentacled head surmounted by a grotesque and scaly body with rudimentary wings. He's described as a god who slumbers in the sea, with humanity living in constant fear that he'll awaken. Scholars and fans of Lovecraft's work have attempted to subcategorize the gods within the Cthulhu mythos. Philip A. Shuffler, who wrote the H.P. Lovecraft's Companion, divided the gods from the mythos in two basic categories. There are the Outer Ones, who dwell in the center of the fictional universe and are thus unreachable. And then there are the Great Old Ones, such as Cthulhu himself, who lives as a prisoner in the city of Ryleth on the earth. And while the mythos originates with the work of Lovecraft himself... Other authors have contributed to developing and expanding the mythos, including Robert Bloke and August Derleth. All of the gods predate humanity, and they have no reverence for human life. Many of the great old ones are imprisoned on various planets. Human emotion and anxiety is depicted as being ultimately inconsequential in the grand scheme of Lovecraft's bleak world. There is some question now about how rigidly Lovecraft constructed this world as a cohesive universe. Some suggest that Lovecraft had fully fleshed out his alternate world prior to writings. Others insist that his universe formed somewhat organically, and he wasn't concerned with there being perfect continuity or consistency, as he merely expanded on his universe with each piece of writing. regardless of lovecraft's writing is evocative evocative and descriptions of the monsters is always amazingly evocative the other writers have sought to expel lovecraft's universe has made meaningful contributions too here are 10 notable deities within the cthulhu mythos number 10 nodens nodens made his first appearance in lovecraft's short story The Strange High House in the Mist, published in 1926. The character is based on a Celtic god, also named Nodens, who was actually worshipped in ancient Britain. The god looks like a fierce old man with gray hair and a long beard. He is said to ride in a chariot constructed of giant seashell, and the whole thing is pulled by mythical beasts. He also appears in the story The Dream Quest of the Unknown Kadath, Number 9. Nyarlathotep. Nyarlathotep, aka the Crawling Chaos, is an evil shape shifting god who is said to be capable of assuming 1,000 unique forms. The character was introduced in Lovecraft's poem, Nyarlathotep, published in 1920. He also appears in the stories. The Dream Quest of the Unknown Kadath, Fungi from the Yugoth, and the Dreams of the Witch's House. Like virtually every other beast within the Cthulhu mythos, the Yarlathotep is so frightening that the very sight of him is enough to drive a human onlooker insane. What makes this guy particularly dangerous is that he can, and frequently does, assume assume the form of a human, an Egyptian pharaoh, to boot. He loves to lie and is acutely conscious of human folly and knows how to manipulate the mass media all too easily to meet his own sinister ends. Azathoth, azathoth, a.k.a. the blind idiot god or nuclear chaos, is an extremely powerful but intellectually limited cosmic entity whose first appearance in a published Lovecraft story was in The Dream Quest of the Unknown Kadath, It's also referenced in the story The Whisperer in the Darkness and The Haunter of the Dark. Azathoth is said to float in the center of the universe, perpetually kept in a state of slumber. Less powerful gods lull Azathoth to sleep with cosmic drums and flutes. The deity resembles a sort of demonic cloud formation. It is said that if Azathoth were awakened for merely a moment, he would potentially destroy the human race. Number seven, Yibtil. Yibtil is described as a large humanoid creature with wings of a bat and eyes which are detached from its head. It's perpetually sucking its cosmic vampire babies, suckling its cosmic vampire babies, which makes the character somewhat androgynous. The character is said to be able to see everything in the universe at any given moment and can easily see through time and space. It can even use its black alien blood to suffocate people. Number six, Yamando, aka the Feaster from the Stars, is an extremely cruel deity hell bent on destroying the human race. He is said to resemble a small ball of fire when he is summoned to Earth and is worshipped as a god by the reptilian creatures of another planet. Sounds sort of like David Icke's theory of alternate reptilian races controlling the universe. All right, number five, Yaglonik. Yaglonik, the defiler, was created by Ramsey Campbell and made its first appearance in the story Cold Print, published in 1969. Nyolik is like the Marquis de Sadi of. Uh, Cthulhu Mythos. He is the god of perversions and sinister impulses. Like Voldemort, sometimes Golonic is summoned in the mere utterance of his name. He is similar to Narlathotep in that he can shapeshift and live amongst humans, but he is different in the way that he is way more evil. He often appears as a fat man with neither head nor neck and mouths in his, the palm of his hands. Ew, that's terrifying. Number four, Glocky. Glocky is said to resemble a large slug with long, metallic spines. Glocky also has the eyes at the end of the long tentacles, which function sort of telescopes on a submarine. The character was created by Ramsey Campbell and appears in the story The Inhabitant in the Lake. According to the legend, Glocky first traveled to Earth inside a meteor. He's extremely dangerous. He can kill victims with a highly toxic fluid that he injects from the spine. The fluid is so powerful that it's capable of turning the victim into a zombie slave. Number three, Lúkthú. Lúkthú, aka Birth Womb of the Great Old Ones, or Lúkthú, is a globe of guts and entrails that is said to be the size of a planet it is said to appear wet and constant and covered in warts and postules with every postule supposedly containing an infantile larva of a great old one the character was created by james and and is written about exclusively in the story correlated contents number two Mortigan. Mortigan was created by Clark Ashton Smith and first appeared in the story, The Charnel God, in 1934. Mortigan is a sort of vacuumous, amorphous entity who sucks in all the heat and energy surrounding him, thus drastically lowering lowering the temperature wherever he is at at the given time. He is worshipped by ghouls. Mordigan attacks his victims by swallowing their energy and physically dissolving their bodies, sort of like a cross between Kirby and a Komodo dragon. Number one, Yig. Yig, which is the father of serpents, appears as either a snake-man hybrid or a serpent with bat-like wings, or just as a giant snake. Yig makes his first appearance in the story, The Curse of Yig, which was originally created by Zeely Bishop and then written again by Lovecraft himself. He is nice enough guy until you cross him, at which point you have to answer to his children, who are, are his army of serpent minions. All right, very cool classification of some of his scariest monsters. All right, we're going to go over to vocalmeat.media. And it looks like some kind of thing called fiction, but it's 52-sentence horror stories, Cthulhu Mythos Edition, by Neil Thitherland. The oldest and strongest emotion of mankind is fear. The oldest and strongest kind of fear is fear of the unknown, by H.P. Lovecraft. There are great truths in this universe that man was not meant to know. There are beings who are so far beyond us that, there were, that were we to glimpse the truth of them, it would shatter our minds and drive us to madness. There are secrets buried beneath the sands of time, lost under the seas and floating in the blackness of space, that put in stark perspective how little humanity truly matters, and that the greatest hope we have is that our light never grows bright enough that it would be noticed by the true powers of the cosmos. We trudge on with our heads lowered, but in our dreams we can hear the call of maddening pipes and feel the shifting mass of truths attempting to reach for our waking minds. The old ones sleep, but for how much longer? What are the Lovecraft Country Monsters, and where do they come from? This is from Newsweek.com. Uh, about three years ago in there they're talking about um lovecraft country which comes on hbo um and it's actually really cool um as far as it being lovecraftian okay lovecraft country i get it but the way they used racism as like the evil as well like yes there are monsters and unexplained cults and like all these magical things But the real bad guy was like how the black people were treated and everything. And some of their monsters even came out of those like stereotypes and stuff like that. So I thought they did a really good job with, you know, showing the real things that people went through with like sundown towns and stuff like that. But also throwing in, you know, cults and being able to. You know, being someone else's body and <laughs> seeing monsters and then all this kind of stuff. It was just really, really cool. Horror author H.P. Lovecraft's monsters, collectively known as the Cthulhu mythos, are sometimes frustratingly formless. They, they're often described as asymmetrical, shape-shifting creatures, and the authors usually focus more on other characters' reaction than the monster itself. The monster's appearances sometimes drive characters insane, like the poor narrator of Lovecraft's 1919 short story, Dagon, who announces plainly, I think I went mad then, after witnessing the titular fish god rising from the surface like a stupendous monster of nightmares. So despite a smattering of horror movies based on his stories, reanimator from beyond color out of space many lovecraftian creatures haven't been brought to life on screen hbo's new series lovecraft country is already rectifying that bringing form to what was once formless yes the monsters that they have in there are pretty cool all right audiences got their first look at lovecraft country on sunday night when the first episode of the gothic drama premiered on hbo Based on a novel of the same name by Matt Ruff, the TV adaptation from showrunner Misha Green follows Atticus Tick Freeman, a black World War II veteran who is searching for his missing father across a segregated landscape of monsters in the 50s America. And if it's clear enough, the monsters are of the supernatural and the Ku Klux Klan variety. Though H.P. Lovecraft is an author of fiction inside the world of Lovecraft Country, Tick and his traveling companions soon find that the Cthulhu mythos is more than just fiction. It's a Shagoth, Tick says in the first episode. After hearing a sound while searching through a wooded area, it's a monster from one of Lovecraft's stories. In this foreshadowing scene, Letitia, Tick's brash friend and freelance photographer, asks Tick what Shagoths look like. A massive bubble blob with a hundred of eyes. Hundreds of eyes, Tix responds. Oh, well, that's not scary at all, Letty says. You can outrun a blob. In the moment, Tick and Letty are joking, like a bunch of teenage counselors invoking Jason uh, Voris around a campfire. But later that night, the Lovecraft Country characters learn that it's no joke at all. Forced into the woods by the local sheriff and his deputies, Letty... Tick and Uncle George narrowly escape death at the hands of the racist police when monsters attack from the dark woods. The creatures are as large as a car with repulsive, wide-jawed faces, hairless pink bodies, but... Their most disgusting characteristic is their yellow-green eyes spread all over their body. Lovecraftian horror becomes most associated with the Earth's first gods and rulers. Most famously, Cthulhu, one of the Great Old Ones, who sleeps in a death-like and dreaming state beneath the Pacific Ocean, in his sunken city of R'lyeh. R'lyeh. I know I'm not saying it right, but... Relia? I don't know. But the Chagas is not a singular being with malevolent motives. It is instead of most protein and pro prototypical of Lovecraft's monsters of being formless chaos that can take on any shape and plays multiple roles throughout the author's nightmarish canon. Chagas were first introduced in a series of sonnets that Lovecraft began writing at the end of 1929. That were published in pulp magazine Weird Tales. In the 20th of the 36 sonnets comprising Fungi from Ugoth, Shagoths make their debut alongside night gaunts that fly down the nether pits to a foul lake where the puffed up Shagoths splash in doubtful sleep. While we get a good description of the night gaunts in Lovecraft's sonnets, the mere, merely mentioned Shagoths didn't appear again for more than a year. That was typical of Lovecraft, who often name-dropped creatures, then revealed more about them in later tales. Shoggoths make-a-far splashier appearance in one of Lovecraft's most famous stories, his 1931 novella, At the Mountains of Madness, which went unpublished until 1936 serialization in the mad- magazine Astounding Stories. At the Mountains of Madness follows a Miskatonic University expedition, to Antarctica, which uncovers a chain of mountains higher than the Himalayas, a find, soon, a find soon dwarfed by the world-shaking discovery of a vast city predating all of human history by hundreds of millions of years, built by the grotesque extraterrestrial elder things, also known as the old ones. These elder things created multicellular protoplasmic life on Earth, particularly in order to construct a slave race, the Shagaths. First described as vicious masses, the Shagaths were incredibly strong creatures who built cities for the old ones. Through pictorial murals left behind in the dead city, the expedition learns of the Shagaths' rebellion against their masters, whose society was crumbling under the internal pressure of the, and attacks from other cosmic beings, hoping to colonize Earth. In the novella, the narrator, Dr. William Dyer, and a grad student named Danforth are the first to describe the Shikoths based on sculptures found in the ancient city. They were normally shapeless entities, composed of or viscous jelly, which looked like an, a gluttonation of bubbles, and each averaged about 15 feet in diameter, when a sphere. They had, however, a constantly shifting shape and volume, throwing out temporary developments or forming apparent organs of sight, hearing, speech, in imitation of their masters either spontaneously or according to suggestion. Even after the members of an advance party are killed under mysterious, brutal circumstances, the expedition continues their explorations, eventually waking the denizens of the ancient city and reigniting battles between the Old Ones and the Shagaths. The expedition's survivors are chased from the Mountain of Madness by a reawakened Shagath, which is described as being like an onrushing subway train. A nightmare plastic column of foetid black iridescence. The Shagoth is covered in a myriad of temporary eyes, forming and unforming. While the Shagoths pop up in two other Lovecraft short stories, they only reappear in the rantings of madmen and in nightmares. When Tick and Letty's invocation of Shagoths, before their nighttime encounter in the premiere episode of Lovecraft Country, suggests we're looking at an on-screen depiction of shoggoths. It's a little hard to square their description in At Mountains of Madness, which the show quadrupedal monster, which looks like a giant naked mole rat. Lovecraft's Cthulhu mythos has been become a playground for multiple generations of horror writers who have often reinterpreted and recontextualized his most famous creations. In Lovecraft Country, we catch a glimpse of the monster's many eyes, a Shagath signature, and not the only one. The show's monster tear apart sheriff deputies by chomping down on their heads and ripping them away from their bodies. Just as the Shagaths in the at the Mountain of Madness leave behind bodies sucked to a ghastly headlessness. Perusing influential visu- visual depictions of Lovecraft's monsters, like writer Sandy Peterson and illustrator Tom Sullivan's nineteen eighty-eight Field Guide to Cthulhu Monsters, suggests that Lovecraft countries seeming shagoths may be inspired hybrid of several Lovecraftian beasties. While the guide, now an out-of-print collector's item, depicts Shagaths in a spherical, oozing form, the artist's interpretation of minor, of minor Lovecraftian monsters known as ghasts or ghouls are close, also closely match Some characteristics found in Lovecraft Country's monsters, particularly their sensitivity to light. But while they are not a match perfectly with the description of Shagaths in At the Mountains of Madness. The monsters in the first episode of Lovecraft Country are most likely a more concrete reinterpretation of the endless shape-shifting Shagaths. Near the end of the new HBO series premiere, a mysterious whistle sound drawing the Shagaths away. It seems someone new is controlling the creatures created by the old ones. All right. It's pretty cool. So Lovecraft Country, I really did like it. Um, So if you were to picture with me this family, and uh, they are black, and that matters because uh, the guy, the last remaining, I don't know, male descendant or something, he gets invited to this, like, really fancy, uh, like, It's not a castle but it's like pretty much the equivalent of a castle it's like a manor or something and so he gets invited there and it's weird because you can tell that there's like these people are acting like you know the help is the help and white supremacy and you can kind of feel that vibe especially when they're sitting down to dinner just all of the men and our main character is the only black guy there And they make note of it. Like, the way they describe what they're asking for is they basically need the main character's blood because he's the last living heir to, like, this cult leader that they all worship, pretty much. Um, But it's not, like, BS magic. It's, like, real magic. Um, So there's that going on. And then... Because he is one of these people, these people also, the whistle that's blown to control these Shagaths, you know, th- that's the uh, the white cult. <laughs> I don't know what else to call them. That's their people controlling the Shagaths, sending them after their enemies, kind of like guard dogs. And then uh, there's a bunch of magical stuff that happens in between there. Like the mom ends up dying and in a dimensional of space and keeps repeating the same stuff until she knows all the knowledge in the universe. Uh, There's a part where the girl gets cursed and she turns into uh, one of those uh, effigy kind of people. Uh, Just very creepy, very scary. Definitely stuff out of your nightmares. And then somehow or other, by the end of the movie or by the end of the show... Uh, the main character guy has his own Shagath that's made from his blood and all that and like I forget how he got it if he had to create it or had to summon it I don't know but it looks beefier and definitely more deadly than the regular Shagaths so it was pretty cool to see that I was like oh he got one (laughs) he got his own Shagath yeah all right." Let's uh, take a break and get back into it after this. We're going over to CBR.com, where they have the 10 best Cthulhu Mythos creatures for Call of Cthulhu. The monsters of the Cthulhu Mythos are iconic, and there are several a Keeper will want to include in some way. By Isaac Williams. Call of Cthulhu differs from plenty of other mythos, one of the most notable ways in its approach to its monsters. In games like Dungeons and Dragons, monsters are there to be fought. Even unstoppable godly powerhouses will eventually be something the party can defeat. This is not the case in Call of Cthulhu. Few Call of Cthulhu characters can survive lengthy combat. The game is far more focused on investigation, stealth, and fleeing than on its fights. Nonetheless, the Monsters of Cthulhu Mythos are iconic. There are several a Keeper will want to include in some way, even if they're simply an impending threat and failure state. Number 10. Cthulhu deserves an appearance somewhere. There is a reason the game is called Call of Cthulhu. Despite only brief appearances in the most Lovecraft's work, Cthulhu has become by far its most iconic part. His appearance, power, and themes of undying influence strike a chord with players. Cthulhu doesn't have to appear in every Call of Cthulhu game, but players will rarely begrudge his presence. Number 9. Shagoths are iconic recurring monsters Not all of Lovecraft's iconic monsters are unique, powerful gods. Some are just very dangerous alien species. Shoggoths appear in a variety of HP Lovecraft's work, as well as those inspired by him. They are amorphous predators that can be found in many places on Earth. Shagaths readily relatively weak and common natures make them suitable for a lot of campaigns. Plenty of published Call of Cthulhu adventures have shigoths appear as powerful physical threats. Investigators still shouldn't fight them, but they're a problem that the players are more likely able to solve. Nyarlathotep is a more intelligent threat. Nyarlath. Nyarlathep is one of the more recurring entities in Cthulhu Mythos. He is bizarrely more human than a lot of his fellows. Nyarlathotep often adopts a variety of human guides and enjoys manipulating people. He is less likely to appear as a giant unstoppable monster. As such, Nyarlathotep is easier to use in a Call of Cthulhu game than many other powerful Cthulhu Mythos entities. He could appear as seeming as a seeming ally to investigators, or as one of his many guises could lead their foes. He's still unlikely to be outfought or outthought, but his presence is less likely to result in a total party kill. Number seven, Migo are intelligent and dangerous. Migo, or Migo, are one of the more intelligent monsters of Lovecraft's work. They're alien fungi that nonetheless possess very advanced science and technology. They eclipse human beings in engineering, biology, and far more. This sets them apart from some of the more primal human or mindless creatures present in Call of Cthulhu. Mygo have a complex and internal life and psychology as humans do, but with a mortality or morality that humans view as entirely wicked. Their elaborate plans and advanced technology can lead to a manner of strange scenarios. Migo are perfect for an overarching villain who won't destroy the world if they succeed. A single Dark Young makes a terrifying foe. The the Dark Young, like many Call of Cthulhu monsters, they are far more powerful than any investigator will ever be. However, they can make for a suitable climactic foe. Dark Young appear at the ceremonies of their mother's cults. One of One's appearance can make for an effective set piece if the investigators fail to defeat the cult or stop their ritual. A dark young is a suitable monster to appear in this situation, but only one that well-prepared investigators could theoretically defeat, escape, or slow down. Number five, Azathoth is a dreaming apocalypse. Azathoth is beyond the scale of anything else in Call of Cthulhu. The other creatures are far beyond humanity, and capable of things humans cannot conceive. However, Azathoth is the closest thing the cosmos has to a ruler. It is suggested that all reality is Azathoth's dream and will end if he awakens. This gives any campaign involving Azathoth much higher stakes. The investigators won't be trying to stop him from being summoned and destroying the world. They'll strive to keep him asleep to protect the universe. This could put them in a unique moral position, a villainous cult actually using their rituals to pacify Azathoth. Dagon has one of Lovecraft's biggest cults. Dagon is one of Cthulhu mythos' more powerful, but less mentioned entities. He has some times to the Aponius or eponymous Cthulhu, with both of them being worshipped by the same cult. The Esoteric Order of Dagon is one of Lovecraft's most famous organizations, based out of Innsmouth. Dagon himself is an ocean creature who is likely to appear in most adventures. However, he makes for a good overarching villain with his cults and deep ones. If the players are foolish enough to take the waters, then Dagon can show them how much of a mistake that is. Ghouls provide unique role-playing opportunities. Ghouls are one of the most nuanced human species in the Cthulhu Mythos. They are not humans any longer, but they do have similar psychologies. Most most ghouls are loathsome, cannibalistic, and violent. However, some are willing to approach, discuss, and make deals with regular humans. They are not inherently hostile or alien. Ghouls are present near many human societies, feasting off corpses and stragglers. This means they can appear in a wide variety of adventures and campaigns. Investigators can have interesting role-playing opportunities if they take the time to talk to the goals. It can be also open up questions of morality in regard to killing them. Number two, Hester offers the chance for more subtle villainy. Hester is an entity only briefly referred to in Lovecraft's work. He is a- actually taken from Robert Chambers' The King in the Yellow Shorts collection. Later authors built on this to create a wide mythology including Hester. He's noted as a deity of corruption and entropy, who operates out of the city of Carcosa. Hester is associated with magicians and subversive artists, being a patron to both. Hester can be well-suited to many adventures as a backing figure behind a more human antagonist. He himself is one of the more mysterious entities in the mythos. Number one. Deep Ones are an iconic Call of Cthulhu villain. Deep Ones are one of the most infamous species in the entire Cthulhu mythos. They are best known for their appearance in The Shadow Over Innsmouth, where they have overtaken and corrupted a town for centuries. They're ocean-dwelling humanoids who can breed with humanity. Both they and these hybrids are immortal. Deep Ones are well-suited to the coastal town with the dark secret stories of Call of Cthulhu. They represent more human and fightable foes who are nonetheless beyond humanity. These hybrids are varying levels of human and monster. As such, more and more monstrous foes can appear the closer the investigators get to the truth. Alright, so that was about the game Call of Cthulhu, but it had some of the characters in there. going over to reddit where they have an article on the subreddit lovecraft why staring at the great old ones can drive you mad i can't wrap my head around the idea of going insane by looking at these entities i get that our concept of horror and what we find terrifying and incomprehensible differs greatly from that of the main characters in lovecraft's stories do but still As we humans cannot even grasp the very concept of the Great Old Ones, I always think of ants and what would happen if a single one of them somehow became able to think rationally and watch the world the way we do. They would look up and see that, one, the world is way bigger and scarier than they even cared 30 seconds ago. Number two, there's a group of entities that rule everything. They are thousands of millions and every one of them is so superior to ants in every possible way that while they know ants exist, they usually couldn't care less about them to the point of destroying their homes or kill many of them unintentionally, at least until ants actively bother humans. What I don't understand is how would this make an ant go mad? Is it the vast amount of information acknowledged in some such a short span of time Is it the realization of how unfair the universe is? Is it the idea that she's the only ant that knows the truth? Is it that ants will never fully understand the human agenda? Could be a combination of all the previous, but still to me, this does not explain what happens to the mind of an ant or humans that see great old ones, that makes it act and think erratically. I think a standard mind should be able to calm down for a moment and rationalize, okay, things may be different from what we have thought or what we've been taught, but we're, we're no longer the apex predator. In addition, characters involved in such transcend, transcendental revelations usually gather several clues, and by the time they're facing the truth, they know partially what's going on, but refuse to believe it until they see it, so the shock should be significantly weaker to them. And then he's asking the group what they think about the great old ones and why people go insane. I will say for my part, growing up Christian, there is a section that says you can't look on the face of God without your eyes melting. So that's what it makes me think of. But these people are actually going insane whenever they lay eyes on them. All right. Night Raider Dude said... I think the idea is that there's something fundamentally wrong with their appearance. It's like if you do the math work, like how if you throw a ball against a wall, it comes back to you. You throw it again and then suddenly it suddenly does a hard left for no reason. You can't explain it. It shouldn't have happened, but it did, and it would probably wig you out for a while. Looking at them is kind of like this, but it's constant, something you shouldn't see, but are seeing. What's more, because of the implied psychic powers and unexplainable powers these beings give off, it's probably having an effect on you as well. Some people uh, compare it to the uncanny valley that we've talked about in previous episodes. Let's see. From tessellating patterns to inconsistencies with material, this has to be the answer. If you saw something made out of wood flow like a liquid, or watch two bricks and intersect each other like smoke, it questions everything you've ever learned. The Bluest Berries says, uh, I wrote this last month, you don't go insane because they're scary looking, you go insane because they're so utterly alien that they break your perception of reality. Your perception of reality is three spatial dimensions in linear time. Imagine an eldritch god creature parts the veil of time and space to pass from their dimension to ours. The first thing that happens is that There is suddenly more than three spatial dimensions. Reality turns into an optical illusion where your vision refuses to work normally and your brain tries to tell you that what you're seeing is constantly changing. As the creature slithers between the dimensions, you can perceive that the ones you can perceive and the ones you can't. It hurts to focus on. It's nauseating and disorienting to look at as your eyes try to make sense of it, but your vision just slides off it. It doesn't communicate with sound, color, light, or sense. All of those things are part of it, but it has a psychic presence that overwhelms your mind. Its thoughts are broadcast like a radio show that you can't tune out, and it doesn't exist in linear time. It imposes its past, its present, and its future on you, crowding you out of your own mind. You can barely control your body, as you now no longer experience linear time. Inside your mind, you live in a possible futures the creature is contemplating, and you lose your grasp on which one is now. You can't tell the present from visions of the future. You fall to your knees to worship. You are flayed alive as proximity to its presence dissolves your skin. You lope like a predator through the streets, killing your neighbors to spare them this experience. You are a baby squalling in confusion at a world gone mad. You eat your own fingers just to feel the pain and remember you have a body. Your body has melted and merged with that of every other person present. You are no longer an individual. Glorious communion. You don't know which of these moments is real, which are a vision or a promise. Perhaps all of them are real. You realize in a lucid moment that the creature isn't even doing this to you intentionally. It's not even aware of your presence. This is simply its shadow falling on ants because beneath its notice. You feel your mind break as clear as the audible snapping of a bone. Time loses all meaning. There is no concept of self anymore. You are nothing more than awareness. A devoid of personality. Bearing witness to the way our universe screams as it casually rips apart in the presence of this being. Alright, that was a cool theory. Angst says... I think it's the concept of having everything you believed and how you thought everything works flipped around and made be- meaningless. Let's take an example, something else with a similar result but less cosmic and abstract. Shall we? Everyone knows the movie The Matrix, right? Well, The Matrix shut down. You wake up. Some dude shows up saying, "Oh, hey, everything you experienced was wrong. You have a nameless living battery. Your ho- you have been a nameless living battery your whole existence." Here is some nasty looking food. Have a nice day. The exit is to the left. Bye. Your reaction would not be, okay. Your reaction would not be, oh, okay, thanks for the info, have a nice day, but more like, ah, sa, sa, ta, ta, If you understand what I'm saying. Would be very traumatic, I guess. I think it's the same with looking at them. The brain can't comprehend, and then the brain shuts down. right, Nadger Badger says, You don't go mad because they are frighteningly ugly, although they may be valid reason in some cases. The madness is caused because your human brain cannot process what is being asked to accept. I heard a great, succinct description of this in the BBC adaptation of the case of Charles Dexter Ward. The investigator loses their mind upon seeing the partially reformed corpses in Kerwin's lab not because they're hideous but because parts of them keep shifting in and out of existence and they can't give a fixed idea on what they look like the brain blows a fuse because it doesn't fit into the model of reality we build for ourselves there's also the idea that contact with mythos creatures and lore destroys our fundamental understanding of what reality actually is so again our brains cannot cope finally There is the more mundane idea that they just scare the crap out of us. By the end of Pikmin's model, the narrator is afraid of using the subway simply because he knows about the very real threat of ghouls. Ella the Fairy says, This is how I understand it as well, for the most part. Protagonist is not an ant realizing humans exist. They're an adding machine being asked to do trigonometry. Their mind is completely equipped to perceive, let alone understand this thing they are seeing. Let alone understand this thing they are seeing. It ties itself in knots trying to do it, like a computer glitching out. Alternatively, are they having a perfectly sane reaction to their experience, but it only seems that they've gone mad to the outsider who does not believe them? All right. R. H. Newfield said, The way I've always interpreted it, as this isn't necessarily a simple presence of these entities that drives a person mad. It's kind of a strange idea that just looking at something incomprehensible is enough to drive someone mad. If that were true, I feel like most children learning math, maybe adults learning quantum physics, would be driven to madness. A lot of things are pretty incomprehensible until you start to learn about them, which is where madness comes into play with entities like the Great Old Ones. We're a pretty curious species. We see something and we want to understand. There's no madness with math and physics because we can eventually understand. But the more you try to understand a Great Old One, the less it makes sense. These are beings that practically break reality. So your mind is constantly trying to figure out exactly what it is, but there's no conclusion it can ever reach. Therefore, madness. Menace also come from trying to understand the entity's perspective, which would be maddening revelation, and I think where the existentialism tends to come into play. I think that this concept was a lot more believable in Lovecraft's time. Back then, the special effects in movies were stop motion and double exposures and only in black and white. It hadn't been long since people saw an early film of a train pulling into a station and feared that the train would crash into the theater. So the idea that encountering a horrible, inhuman monster would drive a person mad made sense. This, by Fleet Fox. This. I'm a fan of Lovecraft, but you have to admit, some of it is a bit authorial trickery. Like, I'm not sure that simply seeing an alien being is enough to make you go mad, just because it's weird. A little PTSD, maybe. I'm not convinced by the argument in other posts, but precisely because, in fiction, the author isn't forced to explain why... Seeing the horrible thing makes someone go mad, that tickles your own brain to try and imagine such a thing, which gets you to imagine something quite horrible. If the alien being was, say, taking the face of a dead loved one, speaking in their voice, sneering at you in a sinister way, the projecting images in your mind of the eternity of torment it has in store for all of human- humanity, then yeah, that probably would make you go mad. But Lovecraft doesn't go for that sort of thing generally. It's just horror at the other end, at the weird. On a metaphorical level, you could read it as horror at the meaningless mechanistic world coming from an atheist with deep case of nostalgia. Maybe what he had come to believe about the world horrified him. Frog Metal said, In my opinion, Lovecraft was the terrified was terrified of the idea that these horrible monstrosities could reveal some sort of fundamental truth about the universe that mankind couldn't possibly understand. Seeing them in their element would show you that what you understand to be gravity is actually just Yog Sothoth drooling or something, or that everything you know and love is actually an illusion cast in the film of a soap bubble in Cthulhu's Castle Bath. I think that Lovecraft was trying to invoke the idea that these strange gods and monsters just don't make sense given our current understanding of reality. And maybe once your mind is altered by seeing them in their element, reality itself doesn't make sense anymore given the new context. And then your whole perception of reality comes crashing down to the point you become a stark raving lunatic trying to convince passers by the sun is actually an egg. Uh, And our conception of time is actually just two hideous fish swimming around each other in a pan-dimensional bowl. All right. Somebody said, basically, it's not necessary to see the great old one that drives you crazy, but it shifts your view of reality. Once your view of reality shifts, you know that everyone else's view is wrong. So you know something no one else knows. But how do you explain to those people that their reality is wrong? It's like trying to explain to a person born blind what the color red is. It's impossible to describe and impossible for them to perceive. They will never believe you, and you know it's true. All right. Fun Budget said, Imagine you were in a moment in time, suspended, and then instantly you are born again, a baby. To learn, to walk, grow up, make friends, live Learn to live, feel heartbreak, get a job, have family and a career, live out your 80 plus years. A life lived to its fullest. And then you get old and you lie down and you die. And the next instant, you're back in your original body at the same exact moment you left it. You realize it was all a long hallucination, lived out in an instant, and none of it mattered. The people you loved, the life you lived, none of it was real. And now you will spend the rest of your life uncertain if any of this world these people have meaning or substance at all. To know life is subjective is one thing, but to feel it and to understand it would be mind-breaking. All right. Someone said, Full disclosure, in my own Lovecraftian cosmic horror writing, this is how I explain it to myself before I try to describe any of them. But it's based on what Lovecraft wrote and modern rationalizations of Relay. So I do this a lot, but imagine if you were, if you will, a stick figure, a normal stick figure called Tom. Tom only has two directions he can see in, forward and backwards, and if you'd like, up and down. In any case, Tom is a two-dimensional being. He can only see, hear, process, etc., in two dimensions. We're all familiar with a stick figure. Now imagine that you punch a hole through the paper and slowly move a ball, a stick, your face through the paper you are a three-dimensional being what on earth would Tom see he sees each part of your face bit by bit slowly moving through the paper and collapse fold in on itself if you would look it would look horrifying and make zero sense based on his logic and physics now take this to the great old ones they exist on a much higher plane of existence fourth fifth etc they're They move in different ways. Rayla says to have edges in a corner that should not be there. It seems like their creatures are curved on space and time, meaning the great old ones have another dimension they move along, time or mental stuff. It doesn't matter. The point is to go back to Tom. What would you see when something that has another dimension one you can equally not imagine, just like Tom, starts floating around you. Probably something very trippy. They go mad because it's the results of their mind trying to rationalize and fix the physics of a whole new dimension and understanding their current way of life. Their brain literally breaks down when faced with this impossible image, not on a screen but surrounding them, living on another plane, breathing and speaking. This one stay up late play games says I think modern audiences are desensitized to the concept but if you saw these impossible things slobbering down from the stars it would be very different than the whole than seeing a weird bug on reddit for example the weird slime that is thriving in the ruined reactor cores of chernobyl is beyond what we want to understand the horror the insanity comes from the realization that it's all wrong Blind Idiot God said, I like to think of it as a psychological response. It may not drive us insane, especially during current days, but it seem, it's like seeing something our minds will subconsciously trigger chemicals to be released. Maybe how some may get sick by seeing a dead body or feel fight or flight response. We may be able to understand it more now and grasp it, though I could see it making us feel ill, Ill dizzy, and so on to look at. I like the idea of the brain protecting itself, so what we actually see isn't the true physical form. Things may be altered, more grounded, to protect the mind from what it is seeing. Maybe it blurs at the edges or doesn't show up in your periphery at all because your mind chooses to ignore it as an anomaly if it's there. Stuff like that. you should not do this but somebody said go stare at the sun for a while pretty quickly a sane person is going to look away and learn to not look back at it because it causes great great damage that no longer the longer you look at it the madman stares at the sun until he goes blind so now think of a creature that comes from a world where there are no stars it only knows darkness cold and emptiness staring at something that is dangerous for longer than necessary, is the beginning of madness. The timeline is compressed with Elder's Horror. Alright, very cool uh, ideas from Reddit on why you go insane looking at the great old ones. Um, on top of that, we do have people that have had similar things with seeing the paranormal where their brain just can't make sense of it. And so it sees smoke or it sees a shifting, uh, darker than dark image or person or whatever it is. I think it's our brain's way of trying to make sense of what we're seeing, even if it's outside of what we've been taught that is part of the scientific world. I think one day we will understand how the paranormal is part of the scientific. But until that day, I still think it happens in real life, too, is people not going insane, but their brain trying to figure out what they're really seeing. So, all right, let's move on. All right. Thank you for staying with us during this episode, as we talk about cosmic horror and all of the creatures involved in that. And join us next time uh, for another exciting episode of PS Spookishes. If you want to keep up with us and, you know, be a part of the fun, join us on the Facebook page at PS Spookishes. It's a group that we have on Facebook. Um, A great way to connect with me and send me stories for future episodes. And also, I'd put any details regarding the podcast on there. So I look forward to connecting with you guys, and I'll see you on the next episode. Stay spooky, my friends.